Derek. Even Neil. And um, well, for this. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Another welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Hip 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 Historians. This is going to be a really interesting one, right? Because if anybody has ever, and this is one of my fear, like this, this is what one of my fears in life is that you go to your bank account or you get those alerts. You know, who has not got a text message from the bank saying there's been dubious activity on your account? And it sends the, sh- the fear of God through you. It's one of my fears in life getting ripped off. I think touch water hasn't happened to me there. <laughs> yeah. But it's happened to us all. You know, it, it, they're so clever, these, these, uh, these people now that are out to trick you into handing over your money. So this guy we're having on next, Mr. Dan Golden, looks at the big picture stuff of ransomware, which he, he's going to talk to us about. He's actually written a book about it. Yeah, no, he has. Um yeah, really, really prescient. Obviously, at the time, this is, this is where it's all heading. So it's not quite history per se, but, you know, history is everything up to yesterday. So uh, we, we aim to do that on the historians. And he, this, this guy knows how to write. He a, he's a, works with ProPublica now and they break some really good stories. So uh, a lot of research went into this one as well. And he's an interesting character. So, yeah, let's go. Uh, let's go meet Dan. Absolutely. And here he is now. Tell us where you're joining us from today, please, Daniel. I'm joining you from my home outside Boston in Massachusetts in the U.S. Always wanted to visit. It's always been on my list. Great Irish connections with Boston, obviously. Definitely, yeah. And it's a very, very nice city to visit. I'd, I'd recommend uh, if you're coming this year, come soon before it gets too cold. Oh, yeah. You got, yeah, you got proper winters up there in, in Boston. Yeah. yeah, definitely. We have a lovely fall, what we call autumn. With the with the leaves and everything, yeah, it's it's big tourist attraction. Yeah, we do this. Yeah, this is a very nice time to be here, and the 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 trees are changing. It's nice to take a drive up to New Hampshire, Vermont. Yeah, I'm and, sure it's uh, beautiful. You know, yeah. the leaves, it's very beautiful. Yeah. Right. Well, Derek, that's next on our list. And uh, well, add, adding on to Indeed. our ever-expanding list of places to visit from the interesting people that we're talking to on the historians. Now, while we're kind of you know history nerds or or, or his, whatever you want to call us, Dan, what, what your book is a little bit different, you know, what, what attracted our attention to your book. It's not history per se, but I, I suppose it has it root, its roots in historical notions. And basically, just, just for people who are joining us, Dan, Dan's written this book. It's, it would appeal and apply to every single person out there, be you, anybody who's online. Isn't that right, Daniel, in terms of you've written the macro picture of r- ransomware against big corporations and governments. But on a micro level, who doesn't or who hasn't an online banking account that at some stage you've got a scary text or an email saying, your account has been compromised, please click on this link. You click on the link and all your money is gone, right? So this this sort of topic, while, while you're on the big big picture stuff, Daniel, it does have a, a very personal effect on, on people. Would, would I be right in saying that? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I have a co-author, Renee Dudley, and what our, what our book is about is, uh, more broadly speaking, is the growth of ransomware, which is one of the most pervasive cyber crimes and has affected millions of people, as you say, as well as businesses and hospitals and schools and, and government agencies. And essentially what happens is it's a combination of hacking and sort of intelligence cryptography, right? So so they, they uh, the, the gangs hack into your a computer, and once they get in there, they put in software that essentially freezes your files. It changes, you know, it, it encodes them, encrypts them so that you can't access your files. And then you open your computer and it says, there's a ransom note there saying you can't access your files 
uh, if you uh, if you want to get them back, send X number of dollars in Bitcoin to uh, to us. And uh, when we started researching this book four, five, six years ago, the amounts demanded were usually in the hundreds of dollars. Now it's you know hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. Uh, it's become more common. The demands have gotten bigger, and the uh, the cryptography and the the, the uh, computer technology has become much more sophisticated that they're using. Right, I and mean, this is this is really scary stuff. Like you go into like in 2017, this was the WannaCry ransomware worm. That, that that I mean, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Just to give an example of on on the macro level, on the big picture stuff, what what happened there? Yeah, my memory is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that one was an attack on the uh, the, the health services in Great Britain, if if I recall, and. It wasn't quite strictly ransomware, but it was kind of a, a forerunner, uh, uh, a bit of a variant of it. And then since then, there have been many big attacks. Um, the, the most recent, the high, really high-profile one, one of them was the attack on the, uh, uh, the Colonial Pipeline in the U.S., which shut down something like uh, you know, half of the gas stations in the southeast and uh, you know, eliminated 45% of the fuel to the, the American East Coast was shut off. And Colonial ended up having to pay the ransom in order to be uh, uh, reactivate the pipeline. That's right. Something we, happened, yeah. that happened there, Neil, as I just, I, I noticed in the news in uh, Costa Rica. And that was this year where there was a, a ransomware attack um, on the government. And they were actually encouraging the population to over, rise up and overthrow the government if the ransom wasn't paid. So, you know, we're getting into, <laughs> we're getting into a, a political aspect uh, when you start going on that road. Yeah, and another recent thing they've done in the last couple of years is that uh, they'll say... Uh, you know, your your files are now encoded and they'll attack, let's say, a school or a hospital or something. And then they'll say, if you don't pay the ransom, we're going to take all, we've also stolen all the patient information or all the student information, mm -hmm. and we're going to make it public online. And you can, you know, and they'll tell you that they then have, they've made good on these threats a number of times and they've posted leaked information. So when they go in there, before they encode the files, they steal the information in there. And uh, so that that's like, one of the benefits of that is if you can't, even if you uh, figure out how to get your files revived without paying the ransom, that doesn't do you any good if you want because the files are still going to be leaked and published. My wow, gosh, like just terrifying stuff. Here in Ireland, you just mentioned about the attack on hospitals, healthcare systems in a previous ransomware attack, Daniel, just in May 2021, we had a big, one of the biggest, certainly one of the most publicly, what brought into the public conscience here in Ireland was an attack on our health service executive, the HSE, which is our, looks after all our hospitals and, and whatnot. And it was, it was cyber crim criminals. They're linked to a Russian hacking group called Conti, C-O-N-T-I. And what they did was they demanded, this probably all makes sense to you, uh, ransom for non-publication of stolen data and for digital decryption keys to unlock the systems, right? Um, you know, the government at the time said absolutely no ransom would be paid. And then six days after the attack, which it, caught, it, it spun out, like you said, they would be threatened to put on people's patients' records online. It, it basically closed down the health services, as far as I remember. Isn't that right, Derek? It was like, like serious stuff, like people's operations yeah. cancelled. It was... It, 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 that was immediate shutdown, yeah. Immediate yeah. shutdown. It was, it was one, and as I said, it really brought it into public consciousness here in Ireland. 
a relatively small country in comparison, but it, cri it cripples the health service. Now, six days after that attack, the hackers released a decryption key which helped in the recovery process. That's all we know. Mm. So was there a ransom paid? I'm, I, I don't know the upshot of that. You know, I don't know if any, any information has come out about that. But as it stands, the official record appears to be that no ransom would be paid. But mysteriously, six days after the attack, they gave us back the, the, the this decryption key. Well, we, we, we don't have a specific uh, army unit or wing, I think, that deals with all that stuff. So I would suspect heavily uh, some money did change hands. Yeah, it could be. I mean, often we don't know what happens. Often yeah. it's not reported if the ransom is paid. In the U.S., the FBI officially discourages it, but unofficially, I mean, ransoms often have to be paid if you if if something you know lives are at stake, if it's a hospital or some important service, they they can't afford uh, not to have their files. Um, I should probably you know, Conti is interesting. It's uh, as you say, it's Russian, and it it appears to have some connections to the Russian regime. When the Russia first invaded Ukraine, Conti put out a a tweet endorsing the uh, the invasion, and it's got connections to Ryuk, which was another big uh, Russian ransomware strain, and uh, kind of, uh, and they operate out of uh, uh, you know Moscow offices that are you know seem to have connections to the government. So it's quite a powerful. It's been quite a powerful gang. The other thing I want to mention, just in terms of our book, uh, mm -hmm. the ransomware hunting team. We look at, uh, we tell the story of this group of people that formed around the world, including a couple in, in Great Britain, in, uh, in 2016. And what they do is they're brilliant technical people and cryptographers, and they can sometimes go into the uh, network and find the, the key to unlock the files so that you don't have to pay the ransom. And they've saved some you know, millions of people and organizations from paying some billion do billions of dollars in ransom. And they're much more effective than most government law enforcement agencies. But they do it all for free. It's a private group of people who, uh, in their daily lives, are not even necessarily that successful or wealthy, but they see themselves as kind of ransomware superheroes. Wow. So we tell their story, and they're one of the few effective recourses for people who get hit by ransomware. Incredible. And how did you meet or, or gain the trust of these people, Daniel, to, to tell their story? Well, what happened was I'm, my day job is as an editor at ProPublica, you know, which is an investigative media outlet in the U.S. And one of my, I was the tech editor, uh, among other things, and, and a reporter working for me who was Renee, you know, we agreed she'd do a series on ransomware. And she came across one of these guys on the team first just as a source because he knew a lot about it. And then she went to Illinois, and she spent a few days with him. And the personal story was quite compelling. I mean, he he was in his late twenties at the time. He was a, had recovered from cancer. He was very poor. Never had the, didn't have the money to go to college. A high school graduate. He was working for very low wages as a kind of a geek squad type at a place uh, called Nerds on Call. And yet at night, he was cracking all this ransomware and saving all these people. And, you know, Renee called me from the airport and said, we should profile this guy. We shouldn't just use him as a source. Mm. And so she wrote a profile about him. And then gradually through him, he was one of the members of the ransomware hunting team, which is about a dozen people around the world in, in seven or eight countries. Uh, we got to know them all. And, and uh, you know, most of them anyway, and, you know, spent hours and hours on Zoom calls with all of them. And, and the book uh, tells their story. 
Yeah, it's a credible story. And like the, 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 just for for our listeners who may not have picked up the book yet, but I highly recommend that you do because it's it's, it's such a, a gripping tale. Do they see themselves as these superheroes, as you call them? Well, I mean, they're they're relatively modest people, so it's not egotistical, but they see themselves as superheroes in the sense that they believe they have a mission, so that you can't be on this team if you want to charge people for the service of finding the ransomware key. You have to be selfless, even if some of them are desperately in need of money, but they all agree we're not going to charge anybody. Our mission is just to you know, save these people. They say that the people have already been essentially uh, exploited by the ransomware gangs. We're not going to exploit them too. We're not going to charge them any money. We do this for free. Now, they can't always crack the code. Often they can't. If it's done perfectly, there's nothing you can do. But if it has a flaw in it or a mistake, they can figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so they use a whole variety of means to try and find the key. Sometimes it's through cat cracking the code. Sometimes it's through finding the server. But yeah, they do see themselves as, as having a kind of public service mission that is vital and irreplaceable. And this guy in Illinois, there's a uh, near where he grew up as a kid. There's like a huge statue of Superman. There's this town that claims to be Superman's hometown, and they have a big statue. And his parents used to take him to this statue when he was a kid, and he'd stand in front of it when he was five or six years old. And so that probably left a little bit of residue. You know, a lot of them like like superhero stories or video games. And so, yeah, yeah, there's, there's some sense of that with them. And were they wary of, you know, by the very nature, they're presumably secretive. They don't want to be in headlines and in, in- other newspapers around the world. So were they wary when you approached them? Like, I know you had the first contact there and that's usually how it brings to another contact. That's how good journalism works. So is that is that how you got in with them? It was like word of mouth, look, these guys are okay. They're, they're, they're going to respect certain uh, elements of our anonymity. So is that is that how it worked, Dan? Is it like linked from one to the other to the other? Yeah, I mean, that's basically right. I mean, the, the fellow in Illinois, um, when we interviewed him, he was in desperate financial straits. You know, his his car had been repossessed. His his car, his 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 house was possibly going to be taken away from him. And you know, I think the publicity helped. He ended up getting a better, higher paying job and stuff. So he was so he was grateful, and he recommended us to the others. Now, some of them use aliases, and so uh, and they have other ways of protecting themselves and. We're not going to put their street address in the book, you know, that kind of thing. So so we're mindful that um, they don't uh, – they're running a risk because yeah. they're, they're fighting against criminal groups, you know, possible ties to organized crime and so on. And so um, we're careful about not betraying anything they don't want us to, to tell. And uh, But at the same time, we retain our journalistic objectivity about it. I mean, we point out some of the – flaws and paradoxes of their work. So for example, one of the one of the interesting issues is let's say that they find somebody, you know, there's a big ransomware gang like Conti or another that they start uh attacking people and wreaking havoc. The the ransomware hunting team then figures out what the flaw is in the coding and they help the victims and the victims stop paying because they can recover their files anyway. Well, sooner or later, the ransomware gang is going to notice that mm. and they're going to realize they have a flaw. And in many cases, they're going to fix it. Mm. So the ransomware hunting team in the short run, it helps people 
recover their files and it's say, you know, it's, it's a wonderful public service, but in some ways in the long run, they're kind of uh, beta testers for the ransomware gangs because they show them where the mistakes are in their code. That's not their goal. And they try and keep it secret as long as possible that they found a flaw and what the flaw is. But ransomware, when the gangs realize the money's not coming in, they realize, hey, maybe we have a mistake. Maybe the hunting team has found it and they'll go back over it. And sometimes they end up improving their code. So, so you know, we have, we make a balanced assessment of their role in, in dealing with cybercrime, but we're, we are concerned about their privacy. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it makes sense. Uh, have any of them ever been directly threatened or had well, their security compromised? There's one, there's one of them who's actually in London. His name is Fabian Wosar, and he has he engages in a lot of banter online with the gangs because you know in a certain way they have a lot in common. They're all yeah, some hackers, right? Yeah, so, you know they're good hackers. Yeah. But he grew up in Germany and he was living there, and he fe- had people following him, and he was worried that uh, he was on some kind of hit list, and uh, he uh, he moved to England. And um, he, you know, there have been some not so subtle threats in the banter that comes from the ransomware gangs. Mm. So he's probably he's probably the most visible of the of the team members. You know, he's he's been interviewed before and stuff. And and uh, he's also, like I say, he, he probably he feels himself to be in the most danger of any of them. Mm. You know, and, and so so there have been some mm. seeming mm. threats there. Right on. So, like, obviously, the, the the big bad bully in the room appears to be Russia, but that's not that's the, not the beginning and an end of the story, is it? In in terms of just labeling them Russian, that that would be too too generalized, too generic. Yeah, that would definitely be an oversimplification. I mean, there are ransomware gangs in many countries, right? So, mm. so some of the attacks have originated from North Korea some from the Middle East, some from Eastern Europe. And then along with the gangs themselves, they have what are known as affiliates with whom they split the money. And and affiliates will often, they will identify a target maybe, and they will hack into that target. And then they'll let the gang know like, hey, we have an opening here. You can penetrate it with ransomware. So they sometimes work in tandem. And those affiliates are all over the world. I mean, there was one in Canada that we write about in the book. Mm-hmm. Who was uh, he was working as an affiliate for several ransomware gangs and uh, make you a lot of money by doing so. And so it's it's an international issue. It's uh, it's not just Russia, but a lot of the major gangs have have Russian ties. And certainly, we mentioned earlier at the start of this chat that with the invasion of Ukraine, presumably, you know, and even since the book has come out, we're going to see a lot more of this in the news. In terms of, sorry, just specifically in terms of Russian involvement. I mean, there's the battle that's going on on the ground in Ukraine, but there's a whole war being waged behind the scenes that we're probably not even barely getting a glimpse into right now. Uh, It's it's a complicated, evolving situation. I mean, you know, there have been reports of more cyber attacks because of the war, and obviously some of those would be ransomware attacks. Now, at the same time, it might be, a, a victim in the West might be less inclined to pay because uh, Russia is under all kinds of uh, sanctions. And so paying paying a ransom to a Russian gang might be, uh, you know, more problematic for, say, an American business than it would have been two years ago. So, uh, so I think that 
it, it's, you know, on the one hand, there's an incentive there to have more ransomware because Russia sees this as a way to attack the West. On the other hand, for the gangs themselves, how they collect the money may be a little more problematic. So that, that's, uh, that's kind of where it stands. But, it, you know, every day we get some different bit of news and the picture changes a little. Yeah, it just seems disconcerting and particularly unsettling because we just don't know. You know, it's like I said, this stuff is happening in people's bedrooms and remote houses scattered all across the world. It's not something, an, an enemy that you can identify and put a face to. I mean, we, you know, we're talking about the profile of the superheroes who are who in, in the ransomware gang. But what, what about the, the people who carry out these attacks? What, are they in their 20s? Are they of the same profile you did mention that they, they ironically they would have certain things in common with the ransomware hunting team because that's just what they do i mean are they motivated by nefarious means are they bad people are they just criminally in criminal gangs and that's all they know or is it just some um bored teenager well i think that it's kind of all of the above but i would say that you know it's very common for, for them to be people who are well-educated, you know, in math or science, but underemployed, right? So they, they need money. You know, the, the primary motivation is greed. Oh, I don't have a lot of money. I have a, a doctorate in science or, or math or a master's degree, and but I can't find a job. How can I make my money? And then on the dark web, you can buy like ransomware kits that basically set you up for attacking somebody. So if you want to get into the game, it's not all that hard if you have some computer ability. And, you know, they, they like hacking, grew up on computers, and sometimes there's a political motive added to it. You'll notice, for example, sometimes when they when they attack a, a network with ransomware, the code will include instructions to stop if you encounter something in, in the Russian language or in some other language that presumably is the language of the homeland of the attacker. Or you'll even see instructions only attack certain countries or whatever, like Middle Eastern uh, ransomware gangs wanting to attack Israeli businesses. So mm. sometimes there's a political motive, but the more general situation is I like hacking. I know computers. I have well-educated. I, I don't have a job. This is a way I can quickly make money. I'll do it for a few years, set myself up for life. And then I won't have to worry ever again, and I'll have, you know, a big car and a nice house. And that seems to be a very common psychological portrait. Not that complicated then. No. no but but, I, but I, I could see, though, like, I mean, there's an obvious military advantage to the whole thing. And I couldn't imagine, like, I mean, if, if, if the States was going out perpetrating the same crimes, like, the government would be going out looking for these hackers to go and give them good employment, pay them well. Um, and it, it, it was, you know, it's a good cover for, for nation states to say, well, no, this is nothing to do with us. These are these random hacker dudes that are just going out causing mischief, where really it does, it's tactical strike. And, you know, I mean, if you shut down somebody's health service, that's, I mean, depending on the size of the country and whatnot, okay, we got over it okay, possibly because it happens during COVID and there was very little other than COVID going on in hospitals. Mm. But if you, you, you know, if we had the same ransomware attack today, uh, you're going to cause utter chaos. And uh, I, I can certainly see on both sides the, the, the good guys the bad guys obviously having to do battle now uh, in in a military sense uh, through the through the internet yeah it's complicated i mean like if, if if you take russia there was a period before the ukraine war where uh the russians were trying to uh sort of have a little closer cooperation with the u.s in that maybe because they wanted the u.s to look the other way when they were going to invade ukraine in a few months so this would have been probably mid to late 
of last year, right before the war. And so there were a number of summits and there, and there were big attacks on the U.S. from these Russian gangs, you know, shutting down the pipeline. And so, so there was a number of summit meetings and those kinds of things between the Biden administration and the Russian government pressing the Russian government to, hey, can you do something about these ransomware gangs? And they seem to have made a few, you know, they made a few token arrests. They told a few people to stop. And so on. And then the international diplomacy changed and, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and they no longer cared what what the U.S. that the U.S. was worried about ransomware attacks. And so I think those cases kind of got deep sixed and the ransomware gangs got back in business. And and, you know, so so there's yes, yeah, so, so there's kind of a clearly a relationship there, but it's kind of a loose relationship where Russia can disown them when it wants or arrest them when it wants and then put them back in favor when it wants. I mean, it's an authoritarian government. So, so their relations with the gang seem to kind of uh, blow hot and cold, depending on how they feel about international politics. Right on. And like, there's no, there's no perceived end here, Dan. Is there's, there's no winning, like where the, where the cyber war, the ransomware gangs would be defeated, right? It's like, it'll constantly evolve. I think that's right. I mean, because, like I said, they can keep improving their code, and if the code is is perfect, you know, there's very little that that can be done about it. Now, I think it will keep evolving, and they keep coming up with these new strategies, like like leaking the uh, the data, and you know, and so on. So it's, uh, I mean, for the cyber criminals, it's a good model, right? Like if you compare it to the old identity theft approach, okay, you just go in and all you do is steal data. And then you steal somebody's credit card number. Well, you still need to find somebody to buy that information. Just because you've stolen it, you haven't made money off it. It's a two-step process, right? I steal this guy's credit information, and then I try and sell it to somebody on the black market. The ransomware is one-stop shop. You get into the computer, and you do things to the computer, and the very act of that is what makes you the money. So it's much more, it's a much more efficient and quick paying crime than the typical cyber crime. And it's very, it's easy to do. And then it's very difficult to, to enforce against because a lot of the countries that it originates from, we don't necessarily, the U.S. doesn't necessarily have uh, extradition treaties with. So how are you going to catch these people? They're, they're in some foreign country, unless they decide to vacation in Ireland or England or France or somewhere we have an extradition treaty with, you're not going to be able to arrest them. Yeah. And so uh, it's very difficult to stop. And then you have the whole other problem, which is that law enforcement in general, code cracking and technical expertise is not what places like the FBI do best, right? They're good at organized crime. They're not bad maybe on terrorism. But, I mean, they're, they're not really, you know, they don't have the great tech expertise. They're not focused toward that. A lot of these organizations, you know, they require you to be able to run five miles and shoot a gun and stuff. And there's an awful lot of tech nerds who are brilliant code breakers, but they don't want to carry a gun. And they don't want to run five miles. They have no interest in joining the FBI. So it's, so it's very – so our law enforcement organizations are at a big disadvantage. And that's why – these private groups like the ransomware hunting team are actually more effective because this is what they know how to do, right? They know how to crack code and and and, and uh, find keys. And so, one of the problems has been the FBI didn't really doesn't really like to listen to outside researchers. You know, they're the best. You know, they consider themselves the best. Why would we talk to these these nerds? So until recently, until the the Colonial Pipeline attack, the FBI was like, we don't have to deal with you guys. And so. Um, it's it's been something that it's really like 
grown heavily. And then there's a lot of business interests that you might argue have an interest in, in ransomware continuing, for example, insurance companies. So, I mean, they sell ransomware insurance, right? So, so if you get hit by ransomware, the, uh, the, the insurance company pays out, but if you don't, they'll make money off the in insurance premium. And they, insurance companies know how to price these things so that they're going to make money off the insurance. So if there's no ransomware, there's no ransomware insurance. And there's a variety of sort of associated industries that have sprung up to, that are part of the kind of ransomware industrial complex at this point. Mm -hmm. were, were, you, were you yourself concerned um, and Rene, when, when you decided to put your, obviously your name to this book, that you would be targeted then, that you're putting yourself out well, there. Did you take any particular precautions then? Yeah, we did. A, we were concerned and we took precautions regarding our, our computer security and things like that. We, we, we tightened our computer security. You know, we're using our real names and stuff. I don't, yeah. I don't anticipate huge problems, but um, we do, uh, we did try and take precautions to, to, more concerned about backing up files, more concerned about two-factor, you know, authentication. And, you know, the, we took, we made sure we took the precautions that normally are helpful. And were you, were you aware then after the book came out that yourself and Rene were then became under the spotlight within this hidden community of, of, of the, rans the ransom gangs and the, the ransom superheroes who were taking them down? Did you become a source of, of banter amongst them then? Are you aware like as, did, 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 I don't think I don't think the gangs have been bantering about us. Now we did interview some of that the hackers, you know, uh, yeah. online and so on. So we do have their voice in the book, and we also yeah. we have a lot of email exchanges and online exchanges and so on that they've had with the team members or with their victims and so. So we give a lot of feel for them and who they are and their voices. But That's right. so far we're not really bantering with them directly. I don't know if once the book comes out uh, that that would happen, but I'm not. Yeah. So some, of, some of these guys so you know obviously with, with those conversations that you're having and and say is like do you know exactly who they are like just, just for instance they were living a couple of blocks away from you and you reported them to either the local police department in boston you have a name and address type of thing is that how far the hunting team can go in once they once they crack the code well i mean in general they only know the people through their online handles, right? So, yeah, which is probably yeah. not their actual right. name and so on. But there was one guy on the team we write about who made it his mission to kind of find who the actual people were. And in a number of cases, he had success. And uh, he referred people to uh, the relevant law enforcement organization for, for prosecution. Uh, I mean, that guy was kind of like personally angry and 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 offended that these these crimes were being committed and he, he wanted to actually get the criminals in general i mean the hunting team is more concerned with helping the victims recover right and it's not but this one guy on the team we write about him he really tried to go after them but in general you know it's the it's the job of the police organization to try and identify the actual person which occasion they do often they don't and it's more the team's job to to save the victim and uh, rescue the victim. That's that's their that's their main uh, priority. There's there's a review here from New York Times, Doug Stanton. He says what Michael Lewis did for baseball in, in Moneyball, Dudley and Golden do brilliantly for the world of ransomware and hackers. Right. So you've written it in such a, a way. Compliment. That, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think what the achievement is yeah. as a writer myself is that you're dealing with a lot of tech heavy jargon. A lot, you know, a subject that people wouldn't necessarily know a whole lot about, apart from what they read 
occasion in the newspaper or, or indeed they get a scary uh, email, as I mentioned earlier, or text themselves that they can relate to, but they don't really, myself and Derek dipped into this, it's great, great, but like, it reads like a thriller. That's like one of the biggest, best uh, accomplishments when you wade into a, a very specific subject, yet make it almost like this This gentleman says, like it's cinematic. You, you can see this on the big screen. Is that something you might hope for for the, for the book, Dan, going forward? Yeah, we, we certainly would love to see it on TV or in the movies. That would be that would be great. Yeah. And we tried very hard to make it very readable. And, you know, and, the, and the fact is, I'm no tech expert, and Renee Moore knows more than me, but she really isn't either. And the hardest part of doing this book for us was making sure whatever tech we have in there, we got right. So, oh, yeah. So because it, it's because it, this and, – and then to boil it down so it's easily accessible for the reader. You know, but we – but uh, – it's funny, we scattered, when, for, when we originally wrote it, we scattered bits of explanation of cryptography and how ransomware works and stuff through the book. And then our editor said, no, no, you need one section to put it all in. And ah. So about two-thirds of the way through the book, there's about four or five pages where I did my best to explain in very clear and simple terms how the cryptography actually works. And I'll tell you, that was the hardest part of the book to write for me. I talked to a lot of excerpt experts. It's a, what is the difference between symmetric encryption and asymmetric encryption? And like, oh my God. And wow. I really tried to make it very clear and simple so the reader could just breeze through it. And then I ran it past all the experts to say, please tell me if I have anything wrong here. But I didn't want, I couldn't, wouldn't be capable of writing it a really tech-heavy book, and I, nobody would want to read it. So, yeah, we tried to make it very e easy to read thriller with a lot of emphasis on personal lives of the members of the hunting team, what was going on in their world. And then the victims, I mean, it actually starts in Great Britain with this attack mm -hmm. on, a, uh, on, a, on a school for poor immigrant kids in London yeah. and how it was you know, hit by ransomware and it couldn't afford to pay. And one of the guys on the hunting team stepped in and found the key and saved the school. And so those are kind of huge. We're trying to tell the human stories and not not and just make it very accessible, readable narrative. And some of those comments like Stanton's, just we achieved it. And, you know, I hope we did. Oh, yeah, 100 yeah, percent. Sure. Like, you can see it as, right. a, as a Netflix series. You know, it's, it's... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you might be able to retire. Yeah, so. You might be able to retire after all, Dan, in, in, in the near future. And if, if it was to appear on the big screen, you know, who would you imagine playing you and uh, who might play Rene? Who, who would you like to see? <laughs> well, I haven't thought about that because I'm not sure that we would have to be characters. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's really the story of the hunting team rather than the story yeah. of her and me. Yeah. But uh, so I haven't got to pondering that yet. But it's, we'll, it's, we'll, the, it's, it's the closest it's thing, though. It's the closest thing we're going to get to a real life, yeah. uh, like Superman, Avengers type of thing, where you know the, the, it actually is that, because you certainly don't get that, obviously, with law enforcement. What's plenty of corrupt people and all that kind of thing in, in there. But uh, no, really, really, really good. You've written another couple of books as well. I wouldn't like to let you yeah. know without quick mention of those, because you uncovered the, the college scandal, didn't you? That was uh, that that was your baby, and then you went into to a bit of a deep dive with spies uh, and recruitment in colleges. Is that right? That's right. So I wrote two books before. The first one was called The Price of Admission. It was about 15 years ago, and it, it was about how uh, elite colleges in the U.S., they, they let in sort of underachieving kids of very wealthy families that make huge donations to get the kids in. And it was, uh, I think at the time, Colleges were pretending that this didn't really happen, that, that the various, that they just let in people purely on merit. 
And so where in reality, there's huge advantages for rich kids. And so I documented that, I think, pretty effectively. And the funny thing was, one of the examples I used in the book was a guy named Jared Kushner. And I used him, this was like 2005, because uh, he was his parents were on a list of people at Harvard, of like rich people, donors to Harvard. And uh, I wanted, I did a study of how many of these people's kids got in. And then I focused on the Kushners because they weren't Harvard alumni, which made it a little unusual. They, they hadn't gone there. And because the father had, had, was a big real estate developer in New Jersey, and he'd been sent to prison recently for some campaign contribution violations and so on. And so I focused on how they, 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 he got this kid into Harvard. He didn't have a very good record with like a big donation, cut several million dollars. And then I watched and wonder is this Jared Kushner who I'd written about, he then, you know, married Ivanka Trump. And then Ivanka's father became president and Jared Kushner became like in charge of Middle East negotiations. So that was very good. That was bad for the country, but it was very good for my book, you know, because, uh, because Jared Kushner brought my book back in vogue. And then there was the varsity blues scandal where all these rich parents were paying this uh, crooked advisor to, to bribe college coaches to, to pretend that their kids were athletes so they would get into college. And that revived my book all over again. So it's had several lives and you, you know, you'll see it referred to a lot. And then, the second book is called Spy Schools, and that was about how American intelligence and foreign intelligence are kind of conducting this secret war on American college campuses, where the where the American intelligence, like the CIA and the FBI, are trying to recruit foreign students, foreign researchers, foreign professors to spy for us, and at the same time, a number of them are spying for the countries they're they're from, like China and Russia. And so this kind of this intelligence battle going on. And and uh, the, the, the timing was that there'd been this huge increase in the number of foreign students on and researchers and professors on American campuses. And so that had kind of created the conditions for this kind of, like I said, this, this side of spying on both sides. And that's what that book was about. And uh, yeah. it, it didn't come out at quite the right time because there, there the Trump administration didn't help the book because... Trump came in saying, you know, he was going to not allow foreign students in anymore. And, you know, he was going to be an isolationist and everything. So I think people who read my book kind of felt like this belongs more to the Obama era. And uh, sometimes that happens with a book. You have good timing, you have bad timing. And in reality, the decline in foreign students was very small and and so on. And Mm -hmm. it really didn't affect anything. But I think to the reader, it didn't feel as timely. Now, this ransomware book is very timely, you know, so hopefully that will help. Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's a great read. It really is. It's like I said, if anybody wants to kind of dip in and just get a, like a glimpse under the covers of what's going on, on on a big world stage. But also, like I said, at the very start, anybody, anybody who's had any risk to their own personal cybersecurity will find this absolutely fascinating. And like I said, it's, it's it reads like a thriller. It's a Netflix series ready to go. You know, Dan's backed it up. And it, well, his previous here was two books that he's previously mentioned there. So a good collection there, Dan. Anything else that you might be thinking of in the near yeah. future? Well, the only thing I'd mention is I, I think it, it looks like The Guardian will run an excerpt, or I think maybe they call it an extract this week mm-hmm. from the book. So okay. people who want to uh, get a taste for the book could read that as well. Yeah. Well, the Excellent. New York Magazine ran one last week, so you could look in either place and get a little feel for it. But, you know, oh, yes. for, absolutely, we'll... we'll, we'll <laughs> mentioned that but anybody you know the ransomware 
hunting team, a band of misfits and probable crusade to save the world from cybercrime. It's a great title as well. That that just thank you. I'm straight in by Rene Dudley and the very very generous Daniel Golden who joined us here this afternoon from what looks like a sunny Boston before the winter kicks in. Yeah. I just want to say thank you for your time, Daniel. Thank you so much. It was really, thank you. really fascinating stuff. It's, it's obviously a weighty subject, but you told in such a way that it's almost entertaining, for want of a better word. But again, thank right. you for your time this afternoon, Daniel. And outside the interview, we'll keep you posted as to when we upload. Well, our yeah. And we thank you if you can share it on social media. As I said, we're just starting off ourselves, myself and Derek. But I mean, Derek, we've had some fascinating guests, but this was like a little bit different for us. And yeah, it's so nice, nice, nice and refreshing. It's great. It, it is history, as I said, everything up to is today history. is history. So it's, it's fantastic. And hopefully we'll catch you again sometime in your next book, perhaps. Great, wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you. Take care. Hope you enjoyed, enjoyed it. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you. I did. Thank you. Bye. Woo! Wow, that was some trip. Don't feel too safe. I, t- <laughs> I don't know if I feel reassured or less reassured after ta- talking to Dan. Yeah. Sometimes you're, you're better off not knowing stuff, eh? <laughs> oh, dear. Hopeless listeners, that it's of being of some interest to you and it hasn't, won't keep you up at night. But look, it's better to be aware sometimes of what's going on. But I agree, with you. It's, it's, it's quite unsettling what's going on in the world. But I will say this, you know, we were saying at the start that it's a little bit different for us as a, a history channel. But yeah. fairness, you know, ransoms, people being held to ransoms goes back to ancient history, right? I mean, that, that was yeah. a kind of a, a weapon of war. So it's just this is the new modern way of, of holding people. Uh, this is it. Yeah. And I, uh, that, yeah, I suppose if that ultimately where warfare goes to, it's just uh, all fought online with a couple yeah. of people twiddling their thumbs. That would be great for everybody. But unfortunately, I think the world is still full of an awful lot of actual physical violence. And I think this is just an added layer to it all. So uh, yeah, more more stuff to worry about. But there you go. <laughs> we'll really try and keep things light on the historians. And maybe the next episode <laughs> it might satisfy that, that need. But listen, great one, Neil, again. And we'll talk to you soon. Look forward to it. Thanks, Derek.